My name is Dr. Ian Storch. I'm a board-certified gastroenterologist and osteopathic physician, and you are listening to DO or Do Not. If you're interested in joining our team or have suggestions or comments, please contact us at doordonotpodcast.com. Share our link with your friends and like us on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, my name is Brooke Pileggi, OMS2 at the Alabama College of Osteopathic Medicine, and you are listening to DO or Do Not. In April of 2022, the American Association of Colleges of Osteopathic Medicine, otherwise known as AACOM, graciously invited the DO or Do Not podcast to attend their national meeting, Educating Leaders Conference in Denver, Colorado. Our two producers, myself, as well as Lerone Clark, who is an OMS2 at the New York Institute of Technology College of Osteopathic Medicine, as well as Ben Berg, our pre-medical student liaison, attended the conference to continue our mission of promoting awareness of osteopathic medicine by interviewing leaders in the field. We would like to thank Dr. Robert Kane, president of AACOM, Joseph Shapiro, director of media relations, and Helene Cameron, vice president of medical education services, for having us at the conference and supporting the podcast. Personally, I had an amazing experience and would recommend the conference for any medical or pre-medical students interested in learning more about the inner workings of osteopathic medicine and osteopathic medical education. On this episode of DO or Do Not, we have Dr. Jeremy Ganoza, a family medicine physician and attending at Skagit Regional Health Family Medicine Residency. In this episode, Dr. Ganoza shares his non-traditional path to medical school and his love for rural primary care. He dives into his own professional journey, beginning as the son of a minister, discussing the challenges and obstacles he's faced along the way. He offers advice for future medical graduates who may be interested in applying to his program and shares his wisdom on how to navigate and prevail in the face of such a rigorous profession, finishing the interview with one of his original poems. Like his journey into medicine, this is a non-traditional interview that you will not want to miss. Welcome to the DO or Do Not podcast. Today we have with us Dr. Jeremy Ganoza. Thank you for joining us today. Could you tell us a little bit about what your roles include and what a typical day looks like for you? Sure. I like to say that I'm a fifth year now Mm -hmm. core faculty at Skagit Regional Health. I'm SN, residency, Mount Vernon, Washington, just up from Seattle, mm-hmm. and keep going a little further up to Bellingham and, and Canadian border. So it's a beautiful part of Western Washington State. And I started there January 2018 after four years of practice, community health center in Bellingham. And I, I get to learn a lot, teach a little with our, our residents in the program. It's a four per class. Started out all osteopathic program, AOA accredited, and now gone on to FM accreditation and osteopathic recognition. And we integrated uh, some MDs in the program. It's made for you know pretty dynamic learning environment. And I get to see patients a couple days a week. And I kind of split that time between family medicine, 
continuity clinic, my panel of patients with a good amount of OMM built into that, and on one day of OMM clinic. Uh, and of course, we have students rotating from uh, a lot from PNWU, some from uh, New Washington State School, uh, University Medical School, and uh, University of Washington, as well as other schools. You know, I get a couple clinical days a week, and generally will precept one or two half days a week in our FM continuity clinic. And uh, it's a lot of meetings other than that. And, and also, you know, set administrative and office time for building our curriculum and uh, improving the program and just dreaming big about you know, how we want to strengthen, strengthen our program. Sounds like a very diverse role. Whole new skill set for me coming from full-time family medicine with OMM, and it wasn't until I became faculty that I had anything with my name published in medicine or, you know, in scholarship. Didn't really have a a background in research, either in undergrad or in medical school. I was an English major and pre-med, and, you know, my best part of the MCAT was the essay. So it's all kinds of new learning experiences and, and new skills, but being in the, the learning environment of a residency is dynamic, and it's challenging to to keep pushing our own knowledge uphill, if anything, to keep pace with, with the residents who are listening to the podcasts and, and doing all kinds of forms of media to expand their knowledge and you know keeping us on the front edge of things. Could you go a little bit more into your residency program? Absolutely. Started a, a decade ago. Again, all AOA credited and you know, basically four DOs per class. So when I arrived, and very strong on OMM from the get-go. Osteopathic medicine was pretty new in the recent history of the community and really quickly took hold and you know, as people experienced it and benefited from it. So when I came in January 2018, all the residents were doing OMT. So I got to walk in as a faculty to a place where everyone was practicing OMM, hungry for more, and just an exciting community to be a part of. And it's a family-like atmosphere. Our program director sets the tone and has a very relational style. At every opportunity, checks in with everyone in the room. How are you really doing? How can we support you? be there for you what do you need and when I started in 2018 really the our first big project and all our meetings revolved around ACGME site visit and accreditation review as so many programs went through in the period of unification and you know a new world for those all osteopathic programs our mentor Dr. Storch sometimes talks about the fact that Many medical students might overlook family medicine in favor of specializing. Can you explain to our listeners why family medicine is so important and what makes family practitioners very special among doctors? I'm going to start by being very brief. Because we're the quarterback. Because the ball always comes back to us. And and it's important, I think, that in primary care and family medicine particularly, we claim that that we not let our role be dismissed or devalued because we might be passing the ball off to someone else. I think it's an analogy that's really apt and 
can be taken further because primary care docs are under tremendous, tremendous pressures. We have more and more duties added on without the addition of, of time resources. And it's very important that family docs be protected, have enough time in the pocket to be able to use their vision, to be able to look downfield and, and to move them in the best ways that they know how and that they were trained. Just like the trend in NFL quarterbacks today, we more and more carry the ball ourselves. And we want to make appropriate pearls and, and coordinate be you know central part of a playing field that way. I also think we need to celebrate our clinicians today like the actual players on the field that we celebrate really value those superstars and look up to them because sometimes we hear about well about career advancement there can be an implication that if you're really successful if you're really going to move forward you're going to step up from that role on the field into into academic life into teaching into healthcare management it's very important i think that that we don't imply that that our, our clinicians on the ground doing the work are on the low rungs of the ladder. And we want our primary care docs doing that work, you know, hands-on, one-on-one with our patients. And I think we need to be more intentional about celebrating that. Absolutely. I can hear your passion behind that, and I think you really make a great analogy. We all know that there is a physician shortage and that it's certainly more pronounced in primary care. Can you share your thoughts on why this is and what we can do to fix it? Such a big, important question, and, and we need to not sink back from that because it's easy to kind of fall back into our own roles within the system and say someone else is going to have to figure that out. Now, on the one hand, it's going to take some big moves, right? Those things may actually take an act of Congress at some point. A number of things in healthcare have, but kind of got to step back, I think, and this is where the importance of history comes in. There was a time when there was a pretty good number of rural docs practicing medicine throughout the country. I'm talking about early on in the history of our country. It was a time when people weren't just doctors. They had multiple careers, including, including doctors. It didn't pay very much in the very early days. But you had a local doc that you could call on and actually be hard to find. They might not be at their home. And I've learned if you couldn't find them, you'd go house to house and say, and then you just stay there until the doctor got there. So, and then they'd charge you like five cents per mile that they rode per horse and things like that. But then things did have to change because that was a time when just about anyone could call themselves a rural practicing doctor and there weren't standards. But as standards came and we know about both the Flexner Report in 1910, we lost medical schools. Even prior to that, in the around the 1880s, Harvard Medical School was the first to establish academic standards that, over time, started to spread to other schools. Something's got to give, and some places lost their providers because they couldn't meet those standards in under-resourced areas. And still today... Those rural areas are still trying to get docs to come out. That's why you get we get mailed all kinds of offers. Big salaries, great place to live, come bring your family to entice doctors to those areas. And I people that have done that and been very happy. We zoom out to the, the big picture and population sizes that 
you know, the numbers aren't adding up to meet those needs across the country. And so many areas of medicine, not everything is going to take government. There can be a number of private efforts, and some local communities have offered full scholarship for medical students to go to school, go on to residency, come back and practice in those regions, and we'll pay for your medical education. And they've been successful on a very small scale. We need to bolster programs like National Health Service Corps. It's very competitive. That um, There's not enough to go around to serve all of those with the passion uh, to go to those underserved communities. Community or faith base could be established. I learned that the United Way, a cooperative effort of many, many non-governmental private organizations, I learned started right here in Denver in the 19 late 19th century. I think we need to be creative in all kinds of ways, make it practical to meet to meet the needs across the country. In your own experience, what proportion of medical students do you think going to osteopathic school are actually interested in primary care when they enter, and how do you think this differs, if at all, from when they leave? I don't know how well it's been studied. I think some things could be teased out. Some of the ECOM and ACGME surveys on going into medical school, out to medical school. My sense is it's definitely different for osteopathic schools than MD schools. And my sense is maybe it's about even going into osteopathic school. There's definitely a trend, a smaller percentage of those, at least keeping their interest in primary care. There's all kinds of forces. There's the math I mentioned about looking at, I'm, I am going to have a family to support. How long is it going to take to pay off those educational loans? What is my lifestyle going to be like? And on the other hand, I think a lot of people, that passion for primary care gets reinforced in osteopathic school. And I do like that the, it's a philosophy of osteopathic schools and the AOA to make sure that whatever specialty you may be going into, first your well-rounded osteopathic family physician that considers any patient your own. And more and more, we also need to see that there's an osteopathic approach to everything. Of course, well beyond musculoskeletal conditions, but we need more hands-on osteopathic docs, surgery, psychiatry, as well as physiatry, sports medicine, across the specialties. You already mentioned that you... Recently, I've been accepting MDs into your program, as well as DOs, of course. What are some of the differences that you've seen between MD and DO residents, if any? You know, that was one of the tough questions to consider because it's enriched our learning environment, what the MDs, our DO residents, offer in teaching them. It's different teaching our MD residents than their first or or second-year DO residents. And it's been exciting to see. In fact, we have a couple of new residents who really want to expand their skills. And, you know, we're looking at how do we make the most of an OMEM rotation for them uh, to get some intensive experience going to Kirksville or Michigan State University. I think our MD residents do bring a strong evidence-based medicine and a fairly well-rounded kind of holistic approach to seeing patients. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see what the future holds for MD residents. 
in osteopathic recognition programs, what's going to mean for board exams, board certification process, how is that all going to play out, how are we going to make that doable? I think this history we're in the midst of, and it's going to be fascinating how, how it all writes out. What are some of the most common hurdles that you see for new residents that are navigating their training? Interesting, I'm speaking of Kirksville in their education, OMM. Their section one was on coding and billing, OMM. That's a, a challenge. That's one thing that first day of residency, first clinic in residency, you got to bill for a visit. How much did you get that in med school? Virtually none. Your preceptors don't bother you with that. They want to focus on the medicine. That's the priority. I think there's a little bit more awareness of, of the need for that, but still it's largely an area. Learning by immersion, learning on the go. Just a very everyday practical topic that's got to be mastered. And then just documentation in general. You know, that's something that you kind of learn by feel. It's the practical things. It's how do you move through a visit. For your residency program, what factors go into evaluating potential residents? For example, our exam score is really high on your considerations. We've de-emphasized the exams, at least the scores. I have some hesitation because, you know, that also goes into the resources that students have and personal challenges they face in medical school. But we've definitely taken a look at that. And when we come to our conversations at the end and we really get into the work of finalizing the rank list, you know, we look at really interested they seem in us in our program. They seem like a good fit for our positive culture where we encourage one another and support one another. Did they have really strong roots, links to the to the area that would pull them there, make it more likely that they'd want to stay, be part of the community? Their statement and drive to do family medicine and embrace kind of everything that it involves. So I think more and more we're looking a little bit more holistically at the person and you know, what it would be like with um, having them out our, at our side as a colleague. Now we'd like to shift gears to hear a little bit more about you specifically. Can you tell us about your journey, where you went to college, when you decided to become a physician? Okay, now I remember my, uh, my little Fisher-Price doctor, <laughs> doctor kid, a little stethoscope, and otoscope and little little temperature taking device had that for a long time but I, I was also wasn't someone who kind of knew from age three that's what I wanted I was going to be an astronaut or firefighter I had a lot of those things in mind and then on and really high school was just well just about surviving and, and I went to three high schools so there was a lot of being the new kid and finding my way and, you know, who's really going to be, really going to be my circle of friends and things like that. And then until senior year, I thought, well, maybe medicine, maybe in, in environmental science. And actually then I went to college at University of the Pacific. I stopped in California, really kind of the exploratory degree for those, those who don't really know. It was sophomore year. I did decide, kind of go into sophomore year to go to go pre-med. You know, it was actually kind of a head decision about where my ability can meet the, you know, the greatest need. My best subject was was math, and I like science. I didn't want to work in a lab. English was half as many credits required as biology or chemistry. 
at the same time as physics and a Methodist uh, a Methodist minister uh, to his home visits and to visit the sick. And uh, I did a lot of listening, closed mouth and open ears, and watched how he brought joy to people's lives, helped them to laugh in the midst of struggle and suffering. I wanted to help people like that too, but I think I wanted to offer them a little bit more about getting them better, about restoring health, about, you know. I, did, I really didn't know about osteopathic medicine, that it was there until I started looking at applying to schools Mm -hmm. and still initially it was kind of it was kind of just off on the side I kind of by the way there's a sociopathic medicine too and I didn't know anyone in it I just started to I know what an MD is and that's kind of what I want to do what I want to be and a number of DOs have have experienced it was when the first round of applying didn't go what I thought was my way. And I said, okay, maybe I should read a little bit more about all my options. And then when I did read a little further, a little deeper about osteopathic medicine, I said, wow, this is why. This is why I'm not already uh, going in school because I want to be a DO. And after that, I applied to two DO schools. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I got interviewed at one of them. And thank you, Western. So... The rest is history from there. But, of course, that that all came about after taking one year off after college that turned into six years of more life experience and a year in AmeriCorps service, community service, and uh, and doing some high school substitute teaching as well as uh, work with youth. And how did those experiences influence yeah, you know, I did just did a lot of, uh, you know, testing my decision. I mean, wow. And then I had to get through the MCAT and wrestle the MCAT mm-hmm. and you know, take it a few times and then realize, yeah, I better take that summer-long Princeton Review course for a half a day throughout the, the summer. And, uh, well, then I still had to go through a, a round of applying and, and learn about osteopathic medicine. But I also wanted to be sure be sure that, you know, that I had not missed out on something else I could be happy doing. Um, I did some temp work for a year after doing uh, AmeriCorps and then a little bit of teaching, which I enjoyed. And, and substitute teaching was a, a really valuable experience. And working with those high school students, learning the importance of first impression in the first 15 seconds right because you can always loosen up but if you let them go too early and it's never going to get them back but you got to set the, uh, the tone and where your boundaries are at the same time i learned from them what respect really means respect isn't just a word respect is a whole way of being a way of taking on in, in your body language in your tone of voice in the way you listen an extra beat and maybe take a second before you respond with what you were were already thinking about. So they taught me a lot about earning respect by showing it, right? And not just kind of demanding it because of what you've done, where you've been, who you are, what your credentials are. Can you talk a little more on your medical school experience? Where did you go and what was it like? 
Western University of Health Sciences, College of Osteopathic Medicine in the Pacific, world's shortest. So I did uh, go to school not too far from, from my home, Southern California, mm-hmm. at, uh, at Pomona. And uh, exciting time to be in med school. They, you know, it exp- expanded their class. We had a nice big class, 180, 200. And, you know, they had a new, they had a new curriculum there. And they had audio lectures and, and pretty dynamic uh, learning environment, strong OMM experience in lab, really kind of a, you know, all-star team of uh, osteopathic faculty, a number of which are still there at, at Western, and you know, I still consider mentors and, you know, well-published there as well, you know, Dr. Ruby, Dr. Seffinger, Dr. Lovelace is prominent in, in the osteopathic world. And, of course, Dr. Redding, the institution of, of Dr. Redding there. So the osteopathic medicine was very strong, good emphasis on, on the value in honoring primary care, as well as empowering students to choose whatever path in medicine, you know, that there's to not see any kind of ceiling on, on how much they can achieve as DOs and be leaders. So school there, rotations there, until fourth year when uh, in uh, 2004, just before med school, I met the person who would become my wife. And she's from right here in Colorado, town of Durango. I went to school in uh, Bellingham, Washington, Western Washington University, and she moved to Southern California when I was in med school. And then I'd visit her up in, in Bellingham, Washington, as she finished college. And uh, and I fell in love that way with the Northwest uh, as well. So we became kind of set on returning to Bellingham area. So we were in Southern California through most of school until fourth year when I thought, you know, Western has this Northwest track program. I didn't have the kind of family roots or established connections in the Northwest to you know, kind of formally join the Pacific Northwest track that they have, but I could open the catalog and see all these great rotations that they'd established in the, in the Northwest and kind of, you know, quietly scheduled myself up there and unannounced, we moved up there and were able to finish fourth year there and, and then on to residency in Yakima from there and so on. So what main factors played a role for you in deciding on a specialty, and how did you ultimately choose? I did go in thinking primary care, thinking about being an old-time kind of family doc, mm-hmm. taking care of the whole community. And then, you know, I, I, left, I stayed open to other possibilities. I thought about, thought about rheumatology as kind of the detectives, clinical detectives of medicine. Well, I kind of like that concept. But ultimately, I like so many things, I don't want to let any of them go. And in family medicine, you get to say yes to so much medicine and not have to let go of those other areas. And we can kind of choose our own path of of emphasis and areas that we want to gain an additional level of expertise, but we can still embrace it all. And so we came back around to family medicine, and I, I did accept a primary care loan at that time, make things a little, a little bit more manageable going forward, and, you know, was ready to commit. 
how was your residency experience overall? And specifically, if you could talk on being an osteopathic physician. It was interesting finding out where I matched. My last medical student rotation was in Kenya. It was six weeks at a mission hospital in central Kenya in the town of Mawa. It serves, you know, close to a million people. We're walking distances, many, many miles for some of them. And that match week took place at some time during that. So I must have found out that I matched and then waited to hear where. And then when I was there, my internet connection was a local internet cafe. Maybe not dial-up, but closer to dial-up than high speed. And so I think I got a a call or text from my wife about where I matched and that we were going to be going to Yakima. And it wasn't exactly what I expected, but it turned out to be the best thing for me. It was was the only dual-approved AOA and ACGME Valley Med program in the state at that time. Also very unique in being a fairly qualified community health center. Fantastic place to to train, particularly in chronic disease management and pain management. They had a pain clinic and integrated behavioral health. In fact, a leader and well-established and, and authored behavioral health psychology expert there that we could train with side by side and have the warm handoffs and actually rotate being on the side of behavioral health and and actually people came from all over the world to experience that model there in behavioral health and train with with our psychologists so that was that was neat to be a part of and of course now that's becoming more and more at least the aspire to standard in primary care as it should be What is one attribute about yourself that you feel helped you become successful as a physician? It's definitely resilience, and uh, I'll I'll fill that out a little bit more. I mentioned I went to to three different high schools. We moved quite a bit, being the family of a pastor in the Methodist church, where you find out where you're going to be every year, every July. It's actually kind of a similar calendar to the training in medicine. Appointments are, are every year. And I mean, reflects the old circuit rider, preacher style, probably similar to father of, of A.T. Still on, on horseback. So we move quite a bit. And, and when you're different rotation every month, you're constantly the new kid. I just got kind of used to where I was. I kind of liked that little community. Up oh, now you're here doing all new new things. So definitely that resilience and and also particularly it is challenging coming into medicine from the humanities from outside the sciences like biology and chemistry and kind of write that culture. I mean it certainly has its advantages in some ways but can be challenging and I think I I love the traditional Japanese saying of fall down seven times and get up eight And, and that's what I think such an important lesson in life, it's not to really succeed the first time. It's how you respond. Another thing I like is the important thing is not success and it's not failure. It's the getting up afterward. Either success or failure, because both of those can easily turn into a hammock. Whether it's my first practical anatomy exam, 
I think probably got a 50 or 60 something and it was like well, that was like a two by four to the side of the head man your whole life where academics and, and testing if it doesn't come easy it comes because you work hard right okay now I'm now I'm on a whole different level mm-hmm. now I've been really humbled put in my place I got mountains to climb I got miles to go and mountains to climb you just keep strapping up your boots and, and you keep putting one foot in front of the other. You take a moment to reflect and learn on, on those lessons that you can. And those those struggles are just a valuable experience and weather us and strengthen us. Uh, teach us important lessons for ourselves in overcoming, understanding the struggles our patients go through and how to encourage them and support them. If you could share one piece of advice that you were given by a mentor, you felt is most impactful you would pass on to other students? You know, my father taught me about the value of hard work. Definitely something that my parents instilled in me. But I think, you know, that's an important part of the conversation. But I think now, especially in the world we're in, we need to recognize that hard work is essential. It's necessary for so many of our students in or outside of medicine. They find it's not enough. It's not enough because there are only so many residency slots. There are only so many spots in medical school. If that's your passion, then you got to keep driving for it. But whether it's med students or graduate students who face incredible odds in the job marketplace, you know, we got to recognize that hard work is not enough. You got to be fortunate. You got to be a little bit right place, right time. It's about who you know, it's about who knows you, it's about circumstances, it's about resources and all of that as well. Certainly, you know, don't give up, don't give up, don't give up if you're really passionate about something. But it's hard, especially these days. Getting to med school than it was for me. And acceptance into med school is not the guarantee that it once was. It's just not. And we Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Can I close with this, uh, maybe just a poem? Absolutely. Called The Seed. One day I planted a seed. In a pot one day I planted a seed. Every morning I woke and I watered my seed. And I waited and watched for my seed to sprout. But I did not see my seed ever sprout. Still every morning I watched for my seed to sprout. Then one day I woke, and I watered a bud. And every morning I waited and watched. I waited and watched for my bud to blossom. I did not see my bud ever blossom, but I waited and watched for my bud to blossom. Then one day I woke, and I watered a flower. And every morning I waited and watched. I waited and watched for my flower to fade. I did not see my flower ever fade, but I waited and watched for my flower to fade. Then one day I woke and my flower, I forgot. I did not wait and I did not watch and I did not water my flower. Then one day I woke and I watered a pot. And every morning I waited and watched. I waited and watched for my pot to, and it was then that I remembered my seed. And so then I went out to find the new seed, and in my pot I planted the seed. And every morning I wake, and I water my seed. Every morning I wake, 
watching and waiting for my seed to sprout. Thank you, Dr. Kinoza. Thank you, really enjoyed it. Thanks for what you're doing. This concludes our episode of Do or Do Not. Send all inquiries, comments, suggestions, and even let us know if there's someone you want us to interview to do or do not podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at Do or Do Not Podcast for updates. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it with your classmates and administration. We have plenty of more interviews lined up, and we're excited to share them with you. This is Tian Yu Shea. Thank you guys so much for listening to Do or Do Not.